0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome. Uh, my name is Damian Paletta. I'm deputy business editor here at The Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm honored today to be joined by the chair of the Senate Committee on Small Business and Entrepreneurship, Maryland Senator Ben Carton. Senator, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Damian, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much.
1: Well, there's so much to discuss. Um, I mean, I know you're always busy on the Hill, but it seems like this week might be busier than most. And I was wondering if, if we could start with <laughs> some of the news of the week, which is we're about 72 hours potentially out from a government shutdown. Um, You've been in Congress a while, you've seen shutdowns. I I wonder what you are making of what we're going through now. You know, what's happening on Capitol Hill? How can you, what would you say to businesses who are kind of looking at Washington and wondering what they should expect?
2: Well, first of all, this is a self-inflicted wound. It helps no one. It's gonna be very costly to the American taxpayers. It'll be costly to our economy. I've been through this before. There is a simple solution today, and that is it must be bipartisan. The House is controlled by the Republicans, Senate by Democrats. President Biden's in the White House. We thought we already had an agreement on the budget uh, when we negotiated the debt ceiling. Uh, You need a bipartisan resolution of this issue. Good news. The Senate has it. The Democrats and Republicans have worked together. We'll pass a continuing resolution sometime this week depending on how those that oppose it want to delay it, but we'll get it done. The House needs to follow suit. If they don't, it's going to hurt our country, and particularly small businesses. Small businesses don't don't have the resiliency to deal with another crisis. They've gone through COVID. They've gone through high pricing. They've gone through workforce shortages. And now we're going to tell our small business owners they're going to have to deal with the uncertainty if they have a government contract uh, or if they're depending upon federal workers uh, for their restaurant that's in a neighborhood where there's a lot of federal workers are going to be shut down again. Uh,
1: Small businesses is, is another hit
2: on the growth engine of America's economy.
1: Would you say that the chances of a shutdown appear to be high at this point? I mean, it doesn't seem like a deal's coming together from both sides. I don't see
2: the House of Representatives, uh, the leadership there that will produce a workable result by the end of this week. So I hope I'm wrong. Uh, I said, the optimism is in the Senate, uh, but Speaker McCarthy is determined to do this solely with the Republicans and not reaching out to get Democratic support. That's a mistake.
1: Uh, if that doesn't change, we'll have a shutdown. And the other big news I wanted to address is last week, um, a Democratic Senator Menendez was indicted by the Justice Department. A, a number of your colleagues in the Democratic caucus have called on him to step down. I wonder what your position on, on where he, what he should do is.
2: I, I thought if you're going to ask me a question that wasn't directly related to small business, it would be about Brooks Robinson. So <laughs> uh, what an iconic figure in baseball and, and as a Maryland congressman and senator and as a person who knew Brooks Robinson well. Uh, he was an incredible figure. The Menendez indictments is a tragedy. We all recognize that. Our caucus will be talking about it today. I'm gonna to reserve how I think we need to proceed until after that caucus, uh, but make no mistake about it, there's a, it's a major challenge uh, for us in the United States Senate.
1: You talked about the pandemic and how the last thing small businesses need to deal with right now is this government shutdown. You, you, as a member, senior member of this committee and the chairman of this committee now, I wonder what you how you see small businesses having evolved. How have they evolved since the pandemic? Is it been an opportunity for some to grow? Has it been a setback for some? I mean, do you see this small businesses being in an environment now that they can prosper? Or are there too many challenges that's making it harder and that the government might need to help them? I'm
2: I'm very excited about small businesses' response to the challenges that we have in in our economy. We've had a record year on startup of new small businesses in America, led, by the way, by women and women of color. And that means we are engaging more of our country, more of our societies in entrepreneurship. So I'm very excited about it. Do they have challenges? You bet they have challenges. Uh, We still haven't fully recovered from the COVID. Workforce is a real challenge for small businesses. Access to capital, it's not even throughout America, and we've been working on dealing with the underserved communities for access to capital so and government contracting needs to be reformed so we we have challenges that we can help small businesses deal with but i am very strong on the the health of the American
1: economy for small businesses. Well, so speaking of those challenges, actually, there was a recent Supreme Court decision that essentially banned um, affirmative action, the use of affirmative action by universities and how they admit students. And we were already seeing this spill into small businesses and the way the small businesses interact with the Small Business Administration. Have you heard much about this concern from businesses? Because it seems like there's a lot of things that are being changed on the fly.
2: So let me emphasize that court case held the 8A program constitutional which is important. It's an important program to deal with the underserved communities. We just have to do a better job in identifying the underserved communities. And I think that's a challenge to all of us. I think we're up to it. We've already seen some steps taken by the Small Business Administration in this regard, and they're working with us. And we think there should be stronger accountability within the 8A program. So we're going to work with the court decision and try to make it work.
1: Well, on the business desk um, at The Post, you know, we've been hearing nonstop predictions of a recession pretty much ever since President Biden took office. First, it was going to be a huge come down from the, uh, right. you know, returned from COVID. Then there's been all these other shocks, yeah, obviously the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But the government, the economy has persisted and defied all expectations. Really, the consumer has done a huge, played a huge role in powering us through. Um, What do you make of that? Why do you think people keep predicting recessions? And why do you think the economy has so far been able to um, avoid one? Well,
2: first, I think we took decisive action for our economy during COVID. Uh, And they were bipartisan bills that we passed to deal with the Paycheck Protection Program, the eligibility for the IDLE programs, the the programs for our restaurants and shutter venues. Uh, It really kept our economy going where where we thought uh, that we would see us not only go into a recession, but a depression on original COVID. And then President Biden, uh, he hasn't gotten credit, full credit for everything he's done. The bills he's been able to get through the Congress, and a divided Congress. Remember, the last Congress was 50-50 on the Democratic side. And yet we got major bills accomplished that really built our economy. The bipartisan infrastructure bill, the American Rescue Plan, the Inflation Reduction Act. All those are bills that helped build our economy from the middle up, from the bottom and middle up. And it's paying off. And that's why we see the type of growth in our economy despite the headwinds. And if you look at the headwinds globally, America is doing extremely well. So, uh, again, I think we've managed these challenges well. We still have challenges moving forward. There's no question about it. But record unemployment rates uh, and job growth uh, and opportunity in this country. And we're modernizing America. And we're helping those that have traditionally been underserved. So we're getting more... Participation in our economy, which is good. We still have challenges. We have to deal with those
1: you talked about these bipartisan deals I mean a big part of what Congress does is pass a budget and it seems like that's an area where they're pretty far apart. You mentioned that there is an agreement, a bipartisan agreement in the Senate to kind of how to get through this next chapter, but you've been through many budget debates you know, in Congress. How would you compare the, what you've been through in the past to the environment we're in now in terms of sitting down, talking about serious issues that affect the country, and trying to get a resolution?
2: Well, first, I, I want to compliment the bipartisan leadership in the United States Senate. Our Appropriations Committee has passed all 12 of the appropriation bills, by not only strong bipartisan support, almost unanimous support. So, And by the way, they're consistent with the agreement reached between President Biden and Speaker McCarthy. So these are not the budgets that the Democrats wanted. I can tell you that for sure, but it's ones that we will support because it was a good faith negotiations, which we think is the right way to go. So on the Senate side, we're ready to carry out the bipartisan agreement, and we have strong bipartisan support for it. Uh, again, I'll come back to Speaker McCarthy. He is crippled by his caucus. He thinks bipartisanship is bringing his caucus together. That's not bipartisanship. Bipartisanship is bringing the House Democrats and, and the Republicans together,
1: working to, uh, to carry out the agreement reached with President Biden. So I imagine a lot of small businesses, we were talking earlier about, you know, the small businesses around national parks. The last thing they want to be thinking about is what's going on in Washington. They've got to make payroll. They've got to get their inventory, worry about potentially the weather, things like that. We have a multitude of things happening at once. We have this potential government shutdown. We have the the end of... Um, the student loan uh, f- um, repayment freeze. We also have the end of some childcare benefits that came up out of the pandemic. There's a lot of things happening in the economy at once. The economy has been resilient. Unemployment rate's very low, as you said. There's a, people are spending money. But do you think that small businesses are worried about all these things at once? Is that something that could potentially make them pull back out of anxiety heading into the final stretch of the year? Well,
2: well small business owners have to worry about their business. They don't worry about everything else that's going on. They have to deal with the challenges that are thrown at them. Uh, they don't have time to try to control those, those outside events. So uh, we have to help in that regard. And that's why I do mention, like, access to capital. It's it's always been on the top of small businesses' concerns. So we have to make that friendlier to small businesses. Now, the administration has taken some steps in the rules that they have promulgated that will open up more competition for small businesses to get access to to loans. We have passed a bipartisan bill in, in the Small Business Committee uh, that would, for example, make permanent the Community Advantage Program, which is more helpful to the smaller of the small businesses. At times, we use one definition for small businesses. But the truth is, smaller small businesses, those in underserved communities, those in rural America, those that are owned by women, and uh, they have greater challenges. And the traditional banking system has not responded as well to those types of small businesses. And that's why we have to provide additional help. And we're trying to do that in regards to access to capital. Government contracting also needs to be better fine-tuned to help uh, the traditionally underserved small businesses and the smaller small businesses, more prime contracts for small businesses. So we're looking at ways that we can help, recognizing that most small businesses do not have a large staff to try to, to deal with these challenges. So the Small Business Administration has to be friendlier. That's why we support the resource partners, the Women's Business Centers, the Veterans Outreach Business Centers, the SBDCs. These are critical components to help small businesses during these times. And then lastly, on the the job market, we have to do a better job in helping small businesses get trained workers. Uh, they, again, cannot, they don't have the resources to, to do the all the outreach and training that's necessary we have to be better fine-tuned to help in regards to the workforce.
1: Well, let's talk about that. I mean, where, where is the disconnect? I've heard that it's immigration, that it's um, people just kind of leaving the areas where maybe these small businesses are. How do you identify that the workforce is particularly, you know, people in their 20s who could obviously add a lot to these small businesses? How how can we incentivize those folks to help join these companies? Right. Well, the first thing you mentioned, immigration is one
2: of the reasons we have a shortage of workers in America, and when there's a shortage of workers in America, small businesses take the largest share of the burden. So, uh, yes, it'd be great if we could reform our immigration system. That's well beyond the responsibilities of the chair of the Small Business Committee. But if we could take care of that, that would be great. But at least the worker visas are areas that we think we can make some progress, and we have bipartisan support to try to deal with some of the worker I can tell you, a lot of small companies in Maryland, our, our crab-picking companies, our, 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 a lot of our wineries, these, they depend upon uh, the H2B visas. If we could work something out there, it, w- it would make a major difference. But we have fine-tuned, both in the American Rescue Plan and some of the other bills that we've passed, training programs to help in regards to small companies. And we have to really implement those programs. I know in Maryland, uh, our state has also taken steps Uh, to do things to help smaller companies in regards to training workers. And then, as we've said frequently, we need a more diverse workforce from the point of view of those that need technical skills. Mm -hmm. uh, And we need to work with our Department of Education, our community colleges and colleges and universities. And we have to work with our HBCUs to make sure that we have fair programs
1: you've been in congress since the end of the reagan administration you've seen you know a spectrum of of issues and political dynamics i wonder if you could share with us uh, what your perspective is on if things have gotten better in terms of the way washington functions or if you think things have gotten gotten worse
2: (laughs) every year is an adventure i mean (laughs) it really is uh some respects things have gotten worse some respects we're getting better uh it It's the First of all, elections deal out the political cards. We have to work with that. Uh, I'll do everything I can to get Democrats elected on Election Day, but after the elections are over, we have to work together. And uh, that has always been a challenge. I really do think that most of my colleagues in the United States Senate agree with that and are working together. I work with Republicans all the time across party line to get things done, and I'm continuing to do that. Uh, But our system, our population has gotten more fragmented. Why is that, do you think? I don't know. When I first started, it was popular to be in the middle. Now it's no longer popular to be in the middle. Uh, I think we really need to recognize that we have to do a better job in civic education and in history. And uh, to a certain degree, the Congress reflects the American public. Uh, And uh, we have to do a much better job in educating our young people as to the richness of debate and compromise and to guard against disinformation, and to recognize that we're going to be stronger if we can bring greater unity to our policies. They're not only going to be better, they're going to stand the test of time. So there's nothing wrong with compromise. And we have to instill that, that we have to communicate each other's views. It starts in our classroom.
1: And it's interesting you say that because there was a lot of compromise on the infrastructure law and some other bills. And and then now we're in an environment with the shutdown where a compromise would be punished. Potent, you know, if potentially if Speaker McCarthy compromises with Democrats, he could lose his job. So there, there's sort of a split screen playing out right now in Capitol. And
2: also civility. I mean, right. we, we, civility should be rewarded. And we're finding it difficult for people to sit down with people they disagree with. And I'm, I'm beyond Congress. I mean, you think about. When you call someone to go out to eat dinner, you have to check their political views before you make a date. I mean, we, we've got to overcome that challenge uh, in America.
1: And so would you you're not running for reelection next year. So you're kind of uh, um... A free agent. You know, you can kind of speak your mind. I'm, I'm sure you always would have speak, spoken your mind. I'm never a mind. free agent. I represent the people of Maryland
2: the United <laughs> States Senate. And I'll continue to do that until January 2025, but I understand your
1: question. Yeah, your so you don't have to worry about the next election is my question. Do you, do you um, kind of head off towards January 2025 with a sense of optimism about the way Congress is working and the, the way the, con- the direction the country is going or with a, a sense of regret that you've spent so much time trying to make things better in your perspective, and that maybe um, it didn't play out at this point like you may thought it would have?
2: Well, if you're a small business owner, if you're a member of the United States Senate, or you're going to be a, a senator, there's no greater country in the world than the here in the United States of America. This is the, the greatest country in the world. I believe that's today. And I've seen us overcome hurdles, and we'll overcome these hurdles. Uh, But I really do believe we have a responsibility uh, to, as leaders, whether you're a senator, or whether you're a a business owner, or whether you're a parent, or whether you're a, a minister or a priest, is to instill the spirit that made this nation the great nation it is. And that is civility. We've got to talk to each other. And we have to come together. We can be partisan on Election Day, but after, when elections are over, we've got to come together. And we've got to govern. Uh, and that's certainly not happening in the House of Representatives today. I think in the United States Senate, we're doing a better job at it. Can we do a better job than we're doing today? Absolutely. We always can improve. Uh, but I think we have the best system in the world. At times, people wonder. But I believe that. And I think we all have to work to make sure that we have the democracies that we want, and the type of system that we want, and the type of economy we want. Um, So, yes, you have a lot of responsibilities as business owners. I understand that. But you also need to get engaged in our community because your economic future depends upon us winning the battle of ideas globally. Uh, We know we have challenges with China today as to who's going to control the rules of engagement on on, on commerce. Uh, We have to win that battle. And it depends on all of us to be engaged on it.
1: When small businesses come to meet with you, are there three main issues they always want to talk about, or could there be hundreds of things depending on the, the type of business? I mean, is it always taxes, labor, maybe something else, or there, is there just a big group?
2: Well, it, it, it rotates a little bit. Capital, access to capital yeah. is always on, on the top of their list. I think uh, dealing with the uh, regulations and bureaucracy is also always high on the list, particularly as it relates to the tax code, or relates to the health codes. Uh, there's lack of sensitivity to small businesses. We recognize that, and we need to do something about that. Workforce has been a major development over the last several years. That has always mushroomed to be a, a, a top issue. Uh, and then we can put the, the new challenges: cybersecurity, AI, those areas. We're working on legislation today that needs to be sensitive to, to small businesses. So there, it, it's a, it, it will depend on the particular company and industry, but generally the themes are the same. We're small companies, particularly the smaller small companies. We don't have a big HR department. We need help in dealing with those issues. We need access to capital. Um, as, and we, we need to have an easier way to get uh, contacts with government contracting because that's the largest single purveyor of goods and services in the world.
1: Senator, we face a very real prospect, speaking of 2024, of having two presidential candidates, one who is slightly above 80 years old and one who's nearly 80 years old. And we've seen from polling that a lot of Americans have anxiety about that. I wonder if you could address that. Um, What are your thoughts on Americans feeling uncomfortable with having kind of aging leaders? And and, um, is it a fair thing for people to be worried about?
2: Well, first, I I think you judge people by their abilities, their views, their their capacity to deliver. I think that's how we deliver. And you can judge by their record. So I think that's the first and foremost in in judging someone. Uh, And recognize that elections are choices. They're not necessarily the perfect person in every category. So I think we have to recognize the realities of, of that circumstance. Uh, And I I think experience is important, as I think age is a factor. So I think
1: a person's age can work to their advantage or disadvantage. And you talked about President Biden not getting credit for some of the things he's done. And I wonder what you make of that. You've probably seen thousands of public opinion polls over the years. He he did pass. He has signed into law numerous bipartisan pieces of legislation that affect red states, blue states, red counties, blue counties, all kinds of different businesses. The economy is strong. Unemployment is low. But he he has a pretty... um, you know, low approval rating. What do you make of that? From you, when you go back to Maryland and you hear from people at small businesses, what, what is their impression of what's going on? Well, first, I think he's
2: a victim of getting too many bills passed too quickly, covering too many different areas. Uh, you could have made a, a two-year career off of any one of these bills as to what's included in it. When you think about the Inflation Reduction Act and what it means for the climate agenda for not only the United States, but the global commitments to the climate agenda, but then put in what he did on, uh, on dealing with prescription drug costs. Uh, you, it's sort of, it's, there's a lot in these bills. In the infrastructure bill, I we, we're still, uh, rolling out new opportunities uh, and we're having local communities that are, that are getting chances to do things to, to make their transportation system more environmentally friendly or reconnecting communities. The social justice aspects uh, was done in just about every one of these bills. So I think part of it is the fact that they're so large and it's, uh, the public has a hard time comprehending uh, when you combine so many things into one particular piece. And the second, of course, is that we have decided that uh, we're going to start campaigns the day after the election, the next campaign. So everything's political. Everything will be judged on politics. For certain Republicans, there's not one thing the president can do that's right. And they're going to find some way of, of demonstrating that. Uh, and look, I don't think it's one sided. I think both part, political parties have gotten very partisan uh, in, after elections. But I think they've curri- we've carried it to an extreme against the president of the United States.
1: So give us a glass half full um, scenario heading into 2024. You know, what can you give us a little sense of optimism about um, this country kind of getting through this this rocky patch politically and heading in a direction where maybe people see more eye to eye?
2: Oh, yes. Uh, Look, um, uh, I've been in this business for a long time, uh, and I've seen a lot of ups and downs. I I really do think we tend to go through cycles. I think we are pretty extreme in regards to division in this country. I think we will come back. I think the American public will reward those who can bring about broader consensus. I think the elected officials will recognize that and and work towards a greater consensus in this country. That's where Americans want us to be. They may have sharply different views, But they do want this country to move forward dealing with our challenges, but in a more uh, consensus way. So I, I, I believe that. I think we have by far the strongest economy in the world. I think that's beyond any real dispute. And I think we'll continue to lead the world. But we have to pay attention to it. We also need to be engaged globally. We cannot isolate ourselves. What Russia is doing in Ukraine affects every small business in America. Every small business in America. What type of economy do you want to participate in? We have to stand up to Russia because it's the front line of defending our democracy here and our way of life here. And uh, all the, the Ukrainians are asking for is money. They're not asking for soldiers. And we have to make that money available. So and I'm very happy that we have strong bipartisan leadership for the support of Ukraine. So uh, I am optimistic. I think our challenges uh, globally are clearly dealing with Russia and China, but also dealing with climate. Uh, And I think domestically, our economy is very, very strong. But we must be smarter. Uh, We have to be more competitive. Uh, Take a look at my progressive consumption tax, as to try to harmonize our tax code to make it easier for American companies to compete, whether you're small companies or large companies. You have to be competitive on the global side today because so much of what we do is global. So I think we have to be smarter moving forward, Uh, and uh, that's why I said we have challenges. I think we'll meet those challenges, so I am optimistic about America's future. Uh, It's been the honor of my life to be able to serve now for 57 years in elected office at the local level, Speaker of the Maryland General Assembly, uh, in the House of Representatives, now in the United States Senate. I am optimistic about our future.
1: That's great. Senator, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We'll have to leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us today at Washington Post Live. Thank you.
3: The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington
0: Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of
3: this content.
4: Good morning, everyone. Um, My name is Brendan Vaughn. I'm the editor-in-chief of Fast Company, which um, I hope most of you know, but if you don't, we are a uh, media brand focused on innovation in business. Um, Thrilled to be here this morning with Jamie Iannone, the uh, CEO of eBay, and Angie uh, Cardona Nelson, whose company, eWaste Direct, sells uh, used and refurbished electronics on eBay. So great to be here with both of you.
5: Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us.
4: Let's start this morning by talking about a phrase I, I really love, and, and there's a lot of great stories here. Angie's is one of them. Um, but let's start with you, Jamie the accidental entrepreneur. Lots of people on eBay are small business owners who didn't even really think they were gonna become small business owners. They started selling things on eBay and it became a business. So um, tell us a little bit more about how that happens, Jamie, um, and sort of how you define uh, the phrase um, accidental entrepreneur.
5: Yeah, thanks, Brennan. So you know, really when you think about it, and all of these sellers that I've met over my years at eBay are people that didn't intend to build a small business on eBay. They started selling one or two things uh, and then kept going with it and actually created a small business on eBay. So clearly there's some that that already have a business, but the vast majority are what I would call accidental entrepreneurs. And I could tell you dozens if not hundreds of stories of sellers I've met who fit this definition. Um, I met a gentleman relatively recently who, during COVID, lost his job with the Orlando Magic because, you know, they had shut things down and needed a way to make a living and had been doing selling uh, sneakers casually on the side and actually turned that into a business, has now hired someone um, and has actually made that his living. Um, and story after story, whether people need extra income or they have something that they want to get rid of. And they turn that into a small business on eBay, and that's what I love about the platform—is hearing stories about those sellers and what eBay's done for them.
4: Yeah, you mentioned the the sneaker sales. Now, I know that some of the the, the sneaker heads like they um, selling sneakers doesn't mean anybody's ever going to wear those sneakers, right? It's, yeah. it's a, lot, <laughs> a lot of it is about having the sneakers and never letting a nick get on them. So uh, my kids were into that for a while. Um, Angie, you are. Uh, a, a perfect example of the sort of big theme here that Jamie was just laying out for us. So, tell us your story. How did you get started on eBay?
3: Well, um, I'm originally from Colombia, and I came to this country to learn English and just immerse in the culture. I never thought of coming here and start uh, an environmental you know, company sustainability from scratch in California. That was just like never <laughs> on my... So I, I am truly the accidental entrepreneur uh, story because uh, newlyweds, my husband and I went to an auction, uh, an abandonment auction. This was in the recession in 2008 when a lot of real estate you know, financial institutions were going down. So we went there looking for some furniture for our brand new apartment and um, we started bidding on you know a couple of other things so, Oh, for our house you know um, and uh, file cabinets and big Apple monitor TV and everything and uh, we ended up with about 80% of that building without knowing <laughs> so we were just doing bids on a couple of things and so um, then we were stuck with so many things, so we started selling them um, locally on, you know, in our garage, garage sales on a flea market, but there is only so much you can sell, right? Uh, so we uh, started selling our things on eBay, <laughs> and uh, that's when things started moving, and we're like, there's an opportunity here. We can really take it to the next level, so we started our service of um, residential e-waste pickup, and uh, you know, it, it, it got some traction and then we went to, we, we expanded into um, uh, businesses in our local area. Um, so items started flying off the shelf on eBay. So that's when we started hiring people to help me you know, take a picture and you know, do the research and all that kind of stuff. Um, so uh, one of the most fascinating things for us is a lot of this equipment is uh, obsolete for a lot of companies. And so uh, there was this uh, server we sold internationally at the time. I had no idea how to sell anything, let alone internationally and eBay had the the tools in, in place for us to do that sale. It was so big enough that we were alla- it allowed us to buy our first big truck and take the the, the you know our, our business to the next level so now we are you know helping um, bigger corporations school districts and and all of these uh, companies to you know with their their uh, retired electronics and so because of eBay we were able to thrive on a very hard you know hardship times because a lot of the e-waste companies were shutting down because of the prices of commodity and because we were selling on eBay we were you know just going up and hiring people when everybody was letting go so um, it was absolutely the best uh, decision for us, and you know now we have over a dozen employees. You know, trucks. We we moved from our garage to you know two big warehouses, and we're one of the, the biggest electronic recycling companies in uh, the Bay Area in, in Northern California. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we were able to uh, thrive also through the pandemic. We became you know essential businesses uh, because we were selling things that even the bigger corporations will not could like, you know, nobody was uh, uh, the, the, the chain supply thing, we had yeah. everything that people needed that the other companies couldn't. So small, small businesses stepped up the game. And so I'm very proud that we were able to succeed through that.
4: It's a great, it's a great business story. The time from when you accidentally, and I want to come back to that for a second, when you accidentally bought a lot more stuff than you thought you were buying till now, how much time has gone by?
3: Um, 16 years
4: 16 years okay yeah. so it's been a nice steady build throughout that time with yep. disruptions to say the least like the pandemic yes. and yes but that we really went our
3: income plans. went from 80% from recycling value to you know uh, an 80% from resale right now we're very sustainable with 80% coming from resale you know remarkable uh, okay. items to 20% recycled so we've been able to divert tons of, of electronics from the landfills and giving items a purpose Um, and and you know just items that are obsolete in this country are fully working and very on demand in other parts of the world and eBay has closed that you know gap for us to where we can explore with no issues whatsoever
4: it's really the kind of platonic ideal of the eBay story. Like, oh, my God, I accidentally have all this stuff. What do I do with it? 16 years later, you have this thriving business. Um, let's move back to you, Jamie. I'd love to just move uh, to the topic of sustainability and re-commerce, which is uh, a lot of uh, um, Angie already teed this up for us. I mean, those, those themes run through her story. Um, but, you know, this is top of mind for many consumers these days. People want to feel like, uh, not just feel like, but actually you know have the products that they buy Um, if it's been used before great Uh, if they can resell it so someone else uses it again great Um, i'd love to hear you talk about what you're seeing just in terms of trends on e-commerce on ebay um, particularly uh, through the lens of the inflationary environment that we're in have you seen inflation have impact on particular product categories et cetera?
5: yeah so eBay is really the pioneer of re-commerce, right? The very first item sold 28 years ago was a broken laser pointer, uh, and since then um, we really thrive uh, from a re-commerce sustainability perspective, uh, reselling goods on the platform, kind of like Angie's business of giving things a second, third, and fourth life. So when when you look at it over the past few years, our actually used and refurbished business have been growing faster than new. Consumers are looking for value on the marketplace. Like last quarter, our refurbished sales were up double digits on the platform, which just goes to show you that consumers uh, appreciate secondhand goods. They want to find value. In fact, we did a re-commerce report, and the number one reason they wanted it was value. But just second close behind was driving sustainability. And think about our younger generation in Gen Z, Focusing on sustainability is incredibly important to them, right? It's actually better to be buying a secondhand or a third-hand piece of clothing because of the impact that you're having on the environment versus buying something new. So we're leaning very aggressively into having e-commerce. We're working with lots of brands, lots of small businesses who resell um, goods that have been refurbished, um, and it's really thriving and growing faster than new products.
4: We're in D.C. Let's talk about D.C. things. Uh, let's talk about um, some of the uh, issues that eBay and other companies in your sector um, are, are focused on right now in terms of policy. Um, I, I'd like to ask you to set up um, sort of the, the status of the debate around um, the 1099 um, debate that, that, that has been happening really since uh, 2021. American Rescue Plan, uh, the uh, reporting requirements um, have went from uh, a 20,000 threshold. So you, you had to have sold about $20,000 worth of things to get a notification from the IRS that you owe tax on, on that business. Um, as part of uh, Biden's plan in 2021, that number goes down to $600, quite a drop from the $20,000 threshold that was before. And it went from uh, you know, many items that needed to be sold to just one item that needed to be sold. So... Uh, Having uh, I've set that piece of it up, can you just talk to us a little bit about, you know, how you see this debate, um, what the status of it is and kind of what what eBay is involved in in advocating for on this
5: front? Yeah, we're supportive of a threshold, but we think six hundred dollars in one transaction is way too low because you're going to get tens of millions of Americans getting confusing 1099 forms and not know what to do with them. You're also going to potentially impact the next generation of accidental entrepreneurs like Angie, because wait, what's happening? Why am I getting a tax form? If you do research on what do I do with 1099K, you kind of now have to hire an accountant and figure it out. And for the vast majority of these people, they're selling their old prom dress or their bike in their garage or their grandma's china set. Like, I don't know if anybody has still the receipt from those things, but we want those things to go back into the economy and be sold a second and third and fourth time to drive sustainability. So we don't necessarily think it needs to go all the way back to where it was, but we absolutely need a much higher threshold for 1099K so we can keep those used products out of landfill. We don't confuse Americans who aren't really gonna own any tax revenue. There's no tax revenue when you sell that used item um, on the platform, and generally at that level, you're not running a business where you're making a profit. Um, And importantly, we don't want people to be stifled by that so they don't end up building their small business on eBay like Angie did. And is there a number that you think is the appropriate number to land at? You know, the, the original was at 20,000. I think, you know, something closer to that would um, would be able to, you know, let's say it's in the um, 10, $15,000 range, that would be Uh, More where like 85% of people that shouldn't be getting it wouldn't be getting a tax form. But basically what we're looking for is um, members of Congress to come together and Agree on a higher threshold and the important thing is to do it this year um, now before the end of the year before uh, Millions if not tens of millions of Americans start getting those tax forms, right? And Angie, I mean go back 16 years How would
4: you have what would this have done to? the 16 years that have followed if you had had, if the the threshold had been 600 for you back then?
3: Um, I think quite honestly, my story would have been very different. Um, You know, that would have deterred us from, from pursuing opportunities that we didn't even know existed yet. Um, And you know, uh, this is supposed to be, supposed to be the land of opportunities. Um, but with such a low threshold, um, I just think that it's going to make the accidental entrepreneur like a non-existent thing.
4: And so, you know, the other side of this debate, of course, is that it leaves too much tax revenue on the table. So what is your response to that argument, Jamie?
5: No, the vast majority of these sales are people are selling used goods. And so uh, generally everybody sells used goods for less than they uh, paid for them. So there's no tax revenue to be gained. As I said You know, we're really focused on selling non-new and season and used goods and driving those. And the other thing is that, you know, I'm not sure the IRS is going to be able to handle these millions or tens of millions of dollars of tax forms. And think about the burden that we'd be putting on people. Like, you sell grandma's China set for $900. There is no receipt. I got to hire an accountant. What do I do with this $900? This is not the time to be taxing Americans trying to be able to drive and survive in this environment. So um, there's not a lot of tax revenue, but it's a massive burden uh, on the economy. And it's a massive implication for people trying to survive or small business is being created
4: let's move on to the small business report that ebay uh has just put out today um today right just went yeah, out, at 9, out 9 a.m. this morning um so uh i i've been able to, to 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 look at the report it's really fascinating data a couple of stats that jumped out to me 76 percent of respondents uh, this was uh based on um, about four thousand four thousand three hundred or so sellers mm-hmm. right um around the world and uh, about 76 percent of them said ebay helped me grow Uh, interestingly 55 percent say they expect to grow a little or a lot in the coming year um, which is an interesting sort of you know the overall economy may be shaky, but I actually kind of feel good, which is an interesting um, dynamic there. So um, tell us a little bit about the, the report itself and what are some of the stats that really jumped out to you?
5: Yeah, look, we love to study what's happening and what's the impact of our small businesses. One of the things that's really unique about eBay is that we don't compete with our sellers. We only win when our sellers win. So when, when we create small businesses and they thrive, eBay thrives. So when you look at it, 61% of sellers actually identify as accidental entrepreneurs. The conversation we had right up at the top. People who ended up creating a business accidentally because of the platform that eBay provided for them. And 86% of them said eBay was critical in doing so because they can build their brand, they can build their business. We know that they're invested. We're not going to steal their business or take their business. We only win when they win. Um, So it's a really great thing. And frankly, the reason I came back to eBay to lead it as CEO three and a half years ago was the impact that this company can make. Um, you've heard Angie's story here, but last night I was in Philadelphia with a 100 of our sellers as we kick off the eBay Open and just person to the person that came up to me told me their story about what eBay did and how it changed their life, whether they were down on their luck or they needed a little extra income, and now all of a sudden, they have a thriving business on eBay. And so the small business report really talks about the impact that we're making. What's great to hear is 61% of small businesses believe in the next 12 months, their business revenue will get better, so small businesses are optimistic, and we're doing everything we can with new tools, new services, new capabilities, to make them more successful and help them grow and thrive on the platform.
4: Angie, as you as you you know plow ahead now through the next few years toward year twenty of your business, what do you um, what do you anticipate? What are what are some of the things that you've got on the horizon as you continue to evolve your business on eBay?
3: Well, um, um, I think so. eBay has evolved with so many, you know, with the the technology, right? So they've put in so many tools in place for sellers to be successful. And now we have so many data that we can use to improve um, the margins of our business and the tools to make us, you know, have a level, a playing field with the bigger retailers. Um, We can also offer uh, promotions. We can also, you know, offer discounts, combine shipping. We have so many different tools to be up there to the same level with them. And that's huge for, for us to, to do. Um, but I also think that after the pandemic, especially, um, people just want to be on their own and they have the quit, the, the silent quitting. And people want to start being more independent and taking care of you know creating their own businesses and I think there's gonna be a lot more businesses coming to the platform as well I hope so there's gonna be a lot more competition but there's eBay also offer the tools for you to stand up your listings and and so on and so forth Um, and but at the same time I feel that the regulations that are coming from Washington are not helping the small businesses and I think it's important because to, to bring this up because the government is supposed to give oxygen to small businesses, to entrepreneurship and what they're doing right now is like creating barriers and you know, not helping that, um, you know, that, that part of, of it. So I hope that that changes you know uh, adjusts a little bit um, to help all of these accidental entrepreneurs coming. Um, you know our future is bright. Um, you know, we are selling internationally. Um, you know, once we turn our, we open our doors to sell international electronics, our um, um, revenue grew by 20% and we were able to hire more people. And so we were definitely global. We came from our garage to selling globally. So that's, we're thankful for that.
4: <laughs> Very cool. Um, we have time for one more question and it's 2023. So the question has to be about AI, of course. Um, I know I'm, I, I actually don't know exactly how, but I am sure that eBay, being a sophisticated technology company, has been using AI for a very long time. It, you know, th- those of us in the uh, outside the tech world can think that oh, AI started uh, you know when ChatGPT dropped uh, last fall, but no, it's it's of course been um, developing for a long time. Um, Jamie, tell us a little bit about how eBay has been using. AI and plans to use AI um, to help both um, buyers and sellers.
5: Yeah, it's really exciting because we have a lot of capabilities to use the data that we have, to use the, the, you know, 28 years of history to make selling and buying on the platform so much easier using AI. And I'll just give you one example, which is, you know, today if you go to list an item on eBay, you've got to write the description and describe it, et cetera. So we've already launched live the ability to have AI write that description for you and save you all the time. So let's say you're selling a Sonos Play 5, you don't have to Describe it will write the whole description for you and we actually have something in an employee beta where you just hold your phone up to something um, and it figures out what it is it fills out all the attributes you need fills out the item specifics and tells you how to price it let me tell you why I think this is game-changing my wife uh, we were in the garage and she found this old remote from 20 years ago we don't have the stereo anymore and that product normally would end up in the landfill in most homes, right? And instead, I put it on the table, and I used our employee beta. And it figured out the remote, what stereos it fit, how much to price it. And it said, sell the remote for $25. So great, like in seconds, two weeks later, somebody buys it for $25. I ship it off. And think about that. I saved that remote from going into the landfill. But I probably also save someone's stereo from going to the landfill because people are too lazy now to go up and touch the remote without a remote yeah. control. Uh, And you think about, you know, the average American household has $4,000 of items they could list online, and less than 20% of that is online. So we have two goals. One is to help create the next future of accidental entrepreneurs with that, two is to keep all those products out of the landfill but give them a second and third and fourth life and so we're using ai to really build these capabilities to make it we call it magically seamless to list those items turn that into a cash, and help move the economy forward so really excited for all the innovations that are happening there and what we can do to help create the future Angie's and the future small businesses um, on the platform.
3: I needed that tool yesterday. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, so I talk about news you can use. How you can sell your old remotes on eBay. I mean, that that's, yeah. that seems like a great uh, beat for us to stop on. Um, thanks, everyone. Thank you, Jamie. Um, thank you, Angie, and thanks, audience. Appreciate thanks, you Brandon. Much. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank
2: you.
0: And now back to Washington Post Live.
6: Good morning, and welcome back. I am Abha Patrai, the economics correspondent here at The Washington Post. And today, I am joined by a fabulous panel. I have Pooja Bavishi here, who is the founder and CEO of ice cream company Malai, Angel Gregorio, who is the founder and uh, founder and owner of the Spice Suite in Washington? And Efat Pradhan, the founder and owner of Lily the First, a clothing shop in Georgetown. Welcome to all of you.
7: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
6: Uh, Puja, I want to start with you. So at Malai, you incorporate a lot of South Asian flavors, turmeric, cardamom, chai, um, into your ice creams. How did you come up with that concept? And how did you factor your heritage and your upbringing into it?
7: Yeah, I. Um, I was always curious. I'm a first-generation Indian American. I was always curious about my culture and my heritage. Um, And when I came up with the concept of Malai, it was really a way for me to expose new audiences to these flavors that were so ubiquitous to me and so familiar to me growing up in something really fun and accessible like ice cream. So our overarching goal has always been to de-exoticize these flavors, make them much more mainstream. It should feel as normal and typical to pull a pint of masala chai ice cream from your grocery store freezer as it is a pint of cookies and cream. Mm-hmm. And that came from like a lot of storytelling and like flavor memories that I've always had. What were the first flavors that you created? So our most popular flavor, rose with cinnamon roasted almonds, actually was one of the first flavors that I've ever created. Um, masala chai is another one. Mango and cream—it's um, just—it's—it's it's delicious, <laughs> and it's—it's um, it's introducing new new flavors. Fantastic, uh, Angel. You had an unlikely
6: path to entrepreneurship. You were a school principal mm-hmm. before you started Spice Suite. Tell us why you made that transition and how you did it.
0: I still don't know why i made the transition. <laughs> um, it was perhaps one of the most like serendipitous things I've ever done. I was not looking to own a spice shop. I love kids. I thought that I would die an educator because that's what I went to school for. Um, and so now I'm wasting money on student loan payments um, because I'm a spice girl. But I just kind of fell into the <laughs> opportunity to own a spice shop. Um, I saw a for lease sign on a business. I randomly called the landlord and I thought it was kind of like when you see an apartment. If you call the landlord and you ask how much the rent is, they'll tell you. But this landlord had questions, like good questions, like, what do you want to do with my space? And I was so unsure. And I was just like, you know what? Don't worry about it. Like, it's fine. I don't need to know the price. You're asking too many questions. And he's like, well, we're looking to make a decision in a couple of days. And I was like, OK, OK, um, I'm going to open a spice shop. Like, can you just tell me the price? And then I hung up, and I called my best friend, and I was like, yo, I'm opening a spice shop. <laughs> and about three and a half weeks later, I opened. I left my job a month and a half after that, and that was eight years ago. Wow. How did you come up with spices? Um, like the actual like spice blends and season, the recipes? I came up with these um, kind of the same way I come up with clothing and outfits, right? I I have this philosophy that food is fashion, and that's one of the taglines for my business along with We Got Food at Home, because I think we all need that reminder. (laughs) Uh, But food is fashion for me because I feel like with food and flavor, you should just layer until it feels good, right? Like you keep on adding, and you edit, and you take away, or you add more. You taste as you go. Um, I tell folks it's kind of like when you get dressed, and you put on an outfit, and you like it, but you're like, I don't have the right shoe but I like this outfit. And then later, you get the right shoe, and it's like, there it is. And so that's kind of how it is for me with bottling um, spice recipes.
6: Perfect. If I, you also had an unconventional path to entrepreneurship. You worked in IT um, and then did a 180 to start a clothing boutique. Tell us about that transition and how you opened Lily the First.
8: Well, I always saw the impact of clothes that they're making on people. So we all dress the part to represent something. Uh, you dress like this today because you want to project something. So I, I was fascinated by this uh, projection uh, by uh, different people when they are in different outfits, how did they make it feel, them feel, and how people are looking at them differently. And uh, very early, I decided that I will uh, open a, a boutique because I also didn't have uh, where much to shop in Washington, D.C. I opened it eight years ago after my two daughters uh, finished their uh, high school. And here I am eight years later.
6: Angel, (coughs) excuse me. In addition to running your own business, you also operate an incubator for black entrepreneurs. Was that always part of your plan when you called up that landlord and asked for the spice shop? And why was that important to you?
0: It wasn't. None of this has been the plan. Like this has all been one big (laughs) accident almost, right? Um, It wasn't really the plan, but I did know immediately that I wanted to share space. Um, I had this small space when I started. I'm in a much bigger space now, but when I started, I had this small space and there was um, empty kind of wasted space in between on the floor that I didn't have any product on. And so I started to post on social media that we would invite small businesses to pop up and sell their products for free because I figured why not fill the space with other business owners. I don't need to make money from them. I'm like, you're also a small business owner. You're trying to make a dollar. There's no point in me charging you some nominal fee when we can really just share space together. And so I started to do that and out of that grew my business model, which I call Black and Forth. Um, I've trademarked that name, which is the idea of going back and forth with black business owners after a conversation with the US Department of Labor where they helped me to um, understand that my business model does not exist in this country. Um, which is this I used to call it a barter into the IRS called and I I learned that I'm not bartering <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't know any better. So now it is black and forth. It is the idea of going back and forth with these black business owners. And while they are popping up selling their products, they run the shop for me. And so I get to step away from my business, save on overhead and operational costs, stay low um, because I don't have to hire folks to run the store for me. I call them Spice Girls. They're not singers, but they all sell their own unique products and run the shop um, in exchange for a space or a home for their business. How many do you have at a given? right now we have 18 and we've had the same 18 for a few years now Um, we've not opened up for new Spice Girls when we do it is like pandemonium um, on social media when we announce that we are accepting new Spice Girls everyone wants to be a Spice Girl and I'm grateful for that but right now the tribe is kind of locked in is it all women All women, we welcome men to pop up. It's a misconception that my business only supports women. We do not, we support men um, as well, but women just happen to be the folks who, you know, kind of come around and stay longer. (laughs) Fantastic.
6: Pooja, I recently wrote about a report that found that roughly one in five Americans are in the process of starting a business or have done so since the pandemic. Um, That's the highest entrepreneurship rate on record. And I'm wondering what you make of that, what's fueling that and why is it important?
7: Yeah, I didn't know that. Um, that's very exciting. I think that, um, you know, like I, I think that people are pursuing their passions, <laughs> and and that is exactly why I started Malai. Like it's a, it's a passion-driven business for me. Um, it's a way for me to be able to tell stories of my childhood and, like, and describe flavor memories, like everything that we do is really intentional. And to have that space to be able to tell my own story, especially when we all live such hybrid lives, mm-hmm. um, I think that that's really appealing. Um, and so I, I can understand why people wanna start their own businesses, especially when it is passion driven. Um, I, I think that also now that we're past like the hump of the pandemic, mm-hmm. it does seem a little less daunting. Um, like I I, we were talking um, just backstage about how we were all just kind of surviving during the pandemic we just had to get through it Mm -hmm. Um, and and now like now that we're on like what seems to be the other side um, there are new challenges and it's about growth and it's about you know being able to spread more for me, like ice cream goodness to as many people as possible and kind of going back to the original goals that we had instead of just hunkering down and, and just surviving. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that's another reason why it's more appealing as well. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Um, it was, speaking of the
6: pandemic, Ifat, uh, you've said that the COVID actually helped your business because it forced you to go online. What was that process like going from a physical store where you had to count on people walking in to going online where you're suddenly selling to the entire world?
8: It, it was a process because every time that we were thinking about going online before pandemic, I said, no, I'm paying Georgetown rent. <laughs> I'm not going to go online. We want to see our customers. And then the pandemic came and we had to reinvent ourselves every day. We started with gift cards, which a lot of small businesses started with that. Mm-hmm. And then we said, OK, let's, uh, let's put some uh, mannequins with the uh, with clothing on the website, and then let's uh, drive to our customers with the packages and tell them to choose from home and then return what they don't want. And then we ask actually customers to volunteer as models. So all our models on our website are customer volunteers, and uh, we're using a local photographer to do all our photo shoots. So she gave us a very good uh, deal in the in the pandemic. We only did the, the work, but now it's. It's funny what happened It's people are coming to visit Washington, D.C. They come to shop, and then they are becoming our online shoppers mm-hmm. or our own clientele looking at, uh, at a website, and then they're coming to the store. They want this personal experience. Mm-hmm. Although we have an online store, even when someone out of the blue wants to buy something, they give us a call. They want to talk to us. So there is a... There is a we are online, but we are a very personalised business as well. We like to give a person the feeling that we see you, we want to help you. We don't want you to get out of here looking ridiculous. Mm-hmm. We will, we work, we will work with you.
6: Perfect. Uh, Angel, what was your experience like during the pandemic? I know a lot of us were hunkered down at home, maybe cooking more than usual. And curious how that translated to your business.
0: Yeah, we started to thrive during COVID as well. Um, I think there was a bit of survivor's remorse around that, though, right? Because, you know, I'm connected to so many other business owners and I see them not doing well or their businesses are closing. And we were thriving because I think everybody had to cook. Whether you wanted to cook or not, you had to cook. Um, And Uber Eats was feeling a little sketchy, you know, like everything. (laughs) was a little scary during the pandemic. So the only thing you could fully trust was what you prepared at home. And so we all became Martha stewards of sorts, right? Like folks were baking breads and trying new recipes. And so I was at home doing the same thing. And so I do what I normally do, which is post my videos on Instagram. Like I post my cooking videos of me just making whatever I'm preparing at home. And folks are like, okay, I I haven't had time to cook. I want it. And so we started to post spice boxes online and the boxes would fly off the website and minutes. Um, we would sell, you know, hundreds of boxes in less than five minutes online. And so we used that revenue during COVID to reinvest it, to start a line of kitchenware. So during COVID, we, um, I still, I always say that like I became the Black Williams Sonoma. So we have like cast <laughs> iron skillets and dough cutters and ice cream scoopers and everything you could imagine. I decided that, you know what, I'm going to go through my kitchen and I'm going to start designing tea kettles and, you know, um, silicone baking pans and all the things so that folks could get everything they need and one shop and so when we fully reopened after COVID, we reopened with a totally new look.
6: Fabulous. Mm-hmm. Uh, Puja, you were five years into your business when the pandemic hit. Tell us what that period of survival was like for you.
7: Yeah, I always talk about uh, Thursday, March 11th, as like the <laughs> longest day in history. Like, I will yeah. never forget that day. It was just like, you know, that Sunday, um, a couple of days after that, is when we got. Um, you know we got noticed that everything has to shut down but that thursday boat before it was just like i felt like everyone was kind of calling each other all entrepreneurs were like everyone like kind of business owners in my network were calling each other and just being like what's what's going to happen mm-hmm. but really like what i like we also thrived during the pandemic because uh, we were an omni-channel business and so we were also shipping online but we didn't know that was going to happen right like all we knew was that with brick and mortar businesses that we had to shut down yeah. and so um, I do remember before we started our online business, like before that really took off, um, I was on Chopped six months prior to that. Oh, wow. And I, I felt like a fraud being on Chopped. I don't have any culinary experience. I just love I, like dessert making, which is why I started Malai. Uh-huh. And so um, I was on Chopped and I happened to win. huh and there was a period two weeks after we shut down that um, there was a day that came that I knew that my bank account, my Malai bank account, was going to go negative. Mm-hmm. It, wasn't, like, it wasn't at a time where like, people were like, no one knew what was happening. And so like, no one was working with each other yet to figure out these things. And yeah. so I knew that my my, um, my account was going to go negative. My, I talked to my dad, who's an entrepreneur himself. And he was like, there's nothing you can do. Yeah. Like, just just... Take a breath and, and just, you'll be fine. And I um, was just going through my mail and my chopped check came in. <laughs> and, and that day, it was $10,000 and like that sustained us. Wow. And so, and that's what I think about the most, actually. Wow.
6: Um, Angel, in many ways we've recovered from many parts of the pandemic, but now there's all these other economic headwinds in the air. There's, you know, fear of a recession sometime next year. We hear about consumers pulling back. Student loan payments are coming back online. How, How do you see that playing out among your consumers and has that affected the way that you think about your business?
0: It hasn't necessarily affected the way I think about my business, but I think COVID, you know, just kind of made everybody, most business owners, I think, just feel prepared for anything, right? It's like if you could sustain yourself when the world was literally shut down and folks were out of work for a couple of years, then I feel like we can get through a government shutdown. It, of course, impacts us financially because folks become more intentional about how they spend their money. So it's like you want to season your food, but do you need to season it with these luxury spices? So, you know, like so folks start making those decisions. But I also feel confident in my product, right? And I know that like while folks might need to take a break from us, I always tell people, I know I'm in an open relationship. I know you guys cheat on me with other spice brands, but you'll come back to me, right? (laughs) It's just like, okay, I'll ride the wave. I know you need to go with someone cheaper, someone different right now because money's a little tight and things are different, but you'll come back because you won't ever forget the feeling that I gave you. (laughs) So that's how I describe myself, my business in terms of spices, because you, you have to, right? Like, nobody's specifically shopping with one brand. Like, I think all of us get cheated on, and we just have to deal with it. Um, And you just know that what you're putting out is a premium product that folks will continue to come back for.
6: Perfect. We have a viewer question that is actually quite timely. Kyle Bayless from Maryland asks, how catastrophic would a government shutdown be for small businesses, and what long-term implications could it have for the future of entrepreneurship and economic stability? Uh, we just heard Senator Cardin say that it's not looking likely that we're going to reach a deal in the next 72 hours. Government shutdown seems more and more imminent. And two of you are right here in DC. Uh, do you fear a shutdown would add, to, for, add further to this economic uncertainty? And how are you preparing for it?
8: We are living in a city where uh, we have government employees. So uh, as the senator said before, it's it's like a snowball. Mm-hmm. So uh, they are not going to work. They don't uh, go to restaurants. Uh, they don't uh, ship uh, with UPS. Uh, they don't have money to come. They don't have a reason to get dressed. It's they, maybe they cook at home <laughs> and they need <laughs> spices. But uh, but but it's it's impacting all of us. And I think Washington DC is one of the cities that can feel it uh, most than any other. Uh, uh, city in the United States, yeah, nature also, of the
0: business. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to add, I also feel like, you know, with, these, with COVID and the, the looming shutdowns, the uncertainty, I think it also will scare people, mm-hmm. like future business owners. I feel like there's so many ups and downs that I think a lot of folks who are thinking about starting businesses, it's like, imagine, you know, you're considering launching a business and then you hear about the shutdown or COVID happens, you know, and you, or you had to live through all of this and you're like, you know what? this is my last straw, like I can't take another delay in, you know, revenue being consistent because the, the reality of business ownership is the revenue is never consistent, mm-hmm. right? Like we just are hopeful that we have more up, you know, good months than bad months. But I really feel bad for folks who are scared to start because there's so much uncertainty economically.
6: Absolutely. Um, Puja, you've had success with your store in Brooklyn, and I understand that you have expansion plans in the works. Tell us what's next for you.
7: Yeah, this is this is such a timely opportunity because Malai is actually opening a brick and mortar in Washington D.C. Um, in the spring summer of next year. So uh, we're spreading the ice cream love um, to the nation's capital, and I'm I'm really excited. I'm really excited to. This is our first store outside of New York, um, and so yeah, it's it's really exciting to be able to be back on that growth plan. Why did you choose Washington for your next opening? This is kind of a nerdy answer, um, (laughs) but we do use um, data and metrics Uh (laughs) to to, um, figure that out. So we we do ship nationwide and we take that data to figure out kind of where our shipments go to. DC is in the top five locations. Actually, there's five locations that make up 70% of where our shipments go to, which is really interesting. Um, And DC is in that top five. as a small business. And because this is our first expansion plan outside of New York City, we did want to make, we wanted to optimize logistics as much as possible Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because New York and DC are so close to each other, it made sense. Um, So I'm really excited. I also used to live in DC and so I'm excited to come back. Fabulous.
6: Um, Ifa, you recently expanded to men's clothing, which seems like a whole different beast. Um, <laughs> what has that been like, and how are you reaching out to these
8: customers? It, it's a, kind of a funny story, because we were always, we are working with small designers from all over the world, so Italy and Spain and Tel Aviv and Japan, and we always ordered the men's collection, mm-hmm. because women like to wear men's clothes. And uh, it's just more comfortable, sometimes it's more cool, and we... And then we happened to have a man come in, and he said, why don't you sell men' clothes? And we said, OK. We just bought a mannequin and put <laughs> it in the window. We did not change the collections at all. But now we're selling men' clothes. <laughs> so it's fabulous. I'm wearing men' clothes. So it's, uh, it's OK. <laughs> I mean, this is uh, a, when you're talking about expansion, it's an, an uh, and we didn't expect to expand in that way, but uh-huh. we did, so it's uh, good for the future.
6: <laughs> um, and Angel, you talk to a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, what do you see as the biggest business opportunity on the horizon, both for you and for others who might be starting out
0: now? I think for, I don't know that there's a, a, like a big business opportunity that I see, but I do hope that when folks are thinking about creating um, new businesses that you come into lanes and like disrupt them. Right. Come into business lanes that exist already and do something new and find and interesting, because as a spice shop owner, like I'm excited to see what else happens in the world of food. Like there are things that could happen that I couldn't even imagine, like hearing about your ice cream flavors, of course, excite me. Right. Because these are flavors that I know well that I use in other ways. But to hear them using this application is exciting for me. So I don't know that there's an opportunity that I have the answer for, but I'm just excited to see what the creatives think of next.
6: Fantastic. And we are nearing time, so we're going to close this out with one sentence each. Tell us, what is the top advice you would give to someone who wants to start their own business, especially right now with all of these economic uncertainties in the air?
7: Uh, Puja, we'll start with you, then move on to and ifat um, I would say, love your product. Um, I truly believe that Malai is the best ice cream in the world. <laughs> I eat it every single day, <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I, to really, to really put everything behind your
0: product. Yeah, um, start now, perfect later. And I'm about to add a comma. (laughs) And be careful who you dream out loud around. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you can always have several iterations of your business. My labels have changed over time. My packaging has changed a million times. My website has changed, but I started. Right? And be careful who you dream out loud around because I'm living a dream I didn't even know I had. And had I called a best friend who was scared, I likely would have got talked out of this dream and living the life that I'm living now.
8: I would say focus. uh, Find your edge. uh, Know what it is that you want to sell. We have so many customers that are coming and saying, can you start selling pajamas? Or can you sell athletic? You have such a great style. But this is not who we are. So when you focus on what you want to do, you just make it better and better. And this is a great way to grow and uh, gain the trust of your customers, because you're, you're really focusing on one great product.
6: Fantastic. And unfortunately, we are out of time. So thank you so much to all three of you for joining us. And thank you to all of you here today in person and online. This concludes our program for today, but please check out what other interviews and segments we have coming up at WashingtonPostLive.com. I am Abba Bachrai, and thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, Go to WashingtonPostLive.com.